Everything we've been studying in uh, the Gospel of Matthew has been leading up to the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're picking up in chapter 28 at the resurrection. Now, we don't know or we don't read anything about the details of the resurrection, like how exactly it happened. We only see the evidence of the resurrection. In fact, let's just go ahead and get a running start at this. We're going to read through beginning in verse 1, Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that's Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. So the two Marys came to see the tomb. There was other women with them as well, as we'll note later. Verse 2, behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So we're at the tomb and we have the women who are there at the tomb, the Roman guards are there, and an angel of the Lord is there. Verse 5, but the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. So they're invited to investigate the reality of the resurrection. The angel of the Lord says, Come and see, and then the angel tells the women to now go and tell. Verse 7, And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And Jesus has told this to his disciples many times. In fact, in chapter 26, that was the last time when he said, Guys, after I've risen from the dead, I'll meet you in Galilee. And it went over their heads at that time, but now the angel is telling these women, go and tell the disciples, meet me in Galilee. So verse 8, so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. They're still a bit fearful, but we can understand that this whole experience had to be overwhelming. That's a lot to absorb, but they also left not just with fear, but with great joy because Their Savior has risen from the dead. And now we're going to notice some drastically different reactions to the discovery of the resurrection in this passage. But for these women, their discovery leads them to devotion. That's the first thing we see. The first reaction is devotion. Verse 9, and as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them. As they're on their way to go and tell, Jesus shows up. Behold, Jesus met them. You know, it's great to have a conversation with an angel. I mean, I've never done that, at least not knowingly. But to have Jesus show up now and have a face-to-face conversation with Jesus, that would be incredible. So on the way to tell others about Jesus, they meet Jesus. And let me just tell you, there is a spiritual principle in that. I have discovered that Anytime you're on your way or you're in the process of going to speak to someone to tell others about Jesus, Jesus shows up. He meets you in that moment. Because sometimes you're like, well, I don't know if I should talk to this person about the Lord. I don't know. I see that they're hurting and I want to share something. I need to share. Or maybe you have friends that you talk to on a regular basis, but you've never shared Jesus with them. You've never talked to them about the Lord. And God keeps pressing upon you to talk to them 
I know for me, when I step out of my comfort zone and, and I just start to talk to someone about Jesus, he shows up. He does. He, he enters into that conversation. And when you do, he will give you the words to say, and you'll go, wow, that wasn't so hard. Uh, that, was, that was easy. The Lord met me in that moment. And so on their way to tell others about Jesus, he shows up. He appears to these ladies after the resurrection. They are the first to see the resurrected Jesus. Now, why did God choose to appear to these two women first? What makes them so special? Well, there have been several reasons put forth that people have come up with. Uh, One, God appears first to these women because he's rewarding their faithful service throughout his ministry in Galilee, and that is certainly true. One person said it was because uh, death came by a woman through Eve in the garden, so new life is first announced to two women in a garden. I like that. One person said God appeared to these women first because the, because the deepest sorrow deserves the deepest joy. And I think there's some truth to that as well. But the reason these women were the first to see the resurrected Lord is simply this. They were there. They were there. That's profoundly simple, but that is the reality. They were there. No one else was there that morning to see Jesus. But because these women were there out of devotion to their Savior, they were the first to see the resurrected Jesus. And listen, if we want to meet Jesus on a regular basis, we need to show up. We need to be there. Uh, If you haven't sensed God's presence in a while, know this. He didn't move. We have. We have. We haven't met him where he is. Where is God? Well, we, we find him in his word. If you haven't sensed God working in your life, be in his word, reading his word, to hear from him, not just to read something and memorize something, but to, to hear from him. To, he will speak to you through his word. If you want to hear from the Lord, you want to God, have God working powerfully in your life, spend time with him in prayer, talking to him, sharing with him, listening to him. He shows up. He is there to meet people who are seeking him. James 4 verse 8 tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It doesn't say draw near to God and you know he might draw near to you or he, he could draw near to you. No, he says draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So that's a promise from God. So these ladies were the first to see the resurrected Jesus because they were the first ones there. They were there. And notice what Jesus says. It says, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. Now, the Greek word for rejoice here was actually a common greeting. Like, hello, hey, what's up, howdy. It was a greeting. Jesus just greets them as they are on their way. He doesn't announce, like, proclaim, I am risen from the dead. He just says, hello. Hi, how are, how are you ladies doing? And they know it's Jesus, because no, notice what it says next. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. They demonstrate their worship and devotion. By the way, this demonstrates the fact that Jesus rose from the dead in a physical body. I say that because some of the earlier writings from the Gnostics, those uh, Gnosticism, uh, which even makes its way into false teaching today, they would say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically, but he was more like a ghost or a, a phantom. 
But Mary and Mary held Jesus by the feet. He rose from the dead in a physical body. Yet, that physical body had properties that were not limited to this dimension. We, we read later, he could pass through physical walls, and which is something that we will be able to do, apparently, in our new resurrected body when we get our resurrected bodies that we'll be able to, to do. But they were able to grab onto his feet and worship him. That's what it says. What other response could there be when you come to know the risen Savior? It's worship. We were created to worship him. You know, it doesn't matter how many Bible verses you memorize if it doesn't bring you to a place of worship. It doesn't matter how many great books of theology you read if it doesn't bring you to a place of worship. God desires that we bow before him at his feet and worship him and that our life is an expression of devotion and worship to him. That word worship, it literally means to kiss towards or to, to bow down, to fall down. And that's exactly what these women were doing. About an hour before this, they thought everything was lost because they thought Jesus was dead. Well, he was. Jesus was dead. But they now know everything was gained because Jesus is alive. And Jesus received their worship. That's an important point. Because if Jesus were not God, it would have been sinful for him to receive worship in this manner. But being God, it was good. It was appropriate for him to receive it. So here you have these women displaying their devotion to Jesus. That's their response to the discovery. And then verse 10, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So Jesus repeats the same message that the angel told them. Hey, go tell my disciples I'm going to meet them in Galilee. Go and tell my brethren, my brothers. This is the first time that Jesus calls his disciples by this endearing name, brethren, brothers. This had to be extremely reassuring to these disciples to hear Jesus refer to them as brethren because all of them had forsaken him. They had all run. They had all fled when he was arrested. So now go and tell my brothers. So they got the message, as we see down in verse 16. Go ahead and drop down and look at verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. So Jesus meets with them in Galilee. And this is where Peter is reinstated after denying Jesus three times. And Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Yes. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And, and he's reinstated. Peter finally gets it. And it's there in Galilee where Jesus commissions the disciples in what's called the Great Commission, which we will look at next week. But here, this incredible discovery of the resurrection led to such wonderful devotion by these women. But there was another reaction to the discovery of the resurrection that takes place, which actually proves the resurrection. And that is, the reaction of deception. We see deception beginning in verse 11. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. So as the women are off to tell good news, these guards are off to tell bad news, at least from their perspective. These Roman guards who were guarding the tomb 
had also discovered the resurrection, and they're reporting it to the chief priests. But why are they going to the chief priests? They don't work for the chief priests. They work for Rome. They, they are Roman guards. Well, here's why. If Pontius Pilate found out that they had lost the body of Jesus, they would have been executed immediately because that's their responsibility. If someone breaks free or, or gets loose under your guard, your life would be taken. That's why in the book of Acts, when Paul and Silas are in prison, they're worshiping the Lord together, and then there's this earthquake, and the jailer uh, immediately takes out a sword, and he's about to, to kill himself because he knows that if the prisoners all escape, he's going to lose his life anyway. So instead of waiting for uh, Rome to torture him and kill him, he's going to just take his own life. But Paul says, no, we're not going anywhere. Relax. We're, we're staying here. We aren't leaving. And these guards here, they would lose their life. So they decide to go to the chief priests, the religious leaders, thinking, well, they can maybe work together to fix this problem. And it tells us here, they reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. So they tell them about the earthquake, the stone being rolled away, that there was an angel, and that Jesus is not in the tomb. He is risen from the dead. They tell them all of that. So what do you do if you're the chief priest? Verse 12, when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together. So they call the whole council together, including the Sanhedrin, the very group that sentenced Jesus to death. They're all, to, they're all together to determine what they're going to do. They're like, hey, we are in real trouble because we've seen what Jesus can do. He heals people of their infirmities. He forgives people of their sins. He raises people from the dead. And now he has risen from the dead? I mean, what are we going to do? I don't know. Maybe humble yourself and, and admit he's the Messiah. There was that option. How about worship him as Lord and Savior? I mean, how much more proof do you need? And the resurrection, it proves his love for you. It tells you he loves you. He says, I care for you. I died for you. And I rose again to prove that I love you, that prove I have victory over the grave. So these men, they should have accepted Jesus as their Messiah, but their hearts are hard and they are very greedy. They don't want to give up their authority. Understand, these religious leaders were very wealthy especially the, the, the Sadducees were definitely the, the wealthy class, the Sanhedrin as well. And they thought, well, if everyone goes after Jesus, no one's going to follow us anymore, and we're going to lose our power, our authority, and our money. They put all of that above the Lord. And people do that today as well. They put money, power, and authority, they put all of that above the Lord and the saving knowledge of Jesus but it's not worth it. So these religious leaders, they come up with a three-point plan. Here's what we need to do. We need to bribe the guards. We need to spread a lie about the resurrection. And we need to protect these soldiers that are, that are coming to us. So first, it says they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. We're not told how much money, but it was likely very significant. I mean, the Sadducees were extremely wealthy. And the Sanhedrin were wealthy. They had money to give. And their future livelihood and respect and authority, it's at stake. So they're going to open up their wallets. 
They're going to put up a lot of money to pay off these guards so that they do as they say. So, well, so that's the first thing. Second, they tell them to spread this lie, verse 13, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. Now, we're going to come back to this one here in a little bit. But third, the Sanhedrin granted protection for the soldiers. We see that in verse 14. And if this comes to the governor's ear, that's Pontius Pilate, we will appease him and make you secure. Remember, Pilate is not in good standing with Caesar Tiberius because of all the blunders he has made with his Jewish constituents. And the religious leaders have used uh, this to their advantage. It's one of the reasons they were ultimately able to get the death penalty for Jesus. So they're blackmailing Pontius Pilate, and they know uh, they can do it again. So they say, don't, don't say anything. We will take care of Pilate. In verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And it is still to this day being spread. Different theories, different rumors, different conspiracies, you might say, that are coming forth. So the religious leaders, they're plotting together with the Roman guards, following through with this deception. Now, the interesting thing is, by doing this, they are actually proving the resurrection. By trying to conceal the truth, they actually reveal the truth. How so? Well, let me give you a few cases. Number one, the disciples, they're in hiding. Remember, they had fled uh, the scene. They, They were in the upper room behind locked doors. They were scared to death because they thought they were next. Uh, that they were, they were scared that they were going to be crucified and killed. So they don't want to be associated with Jesus, much less go to the tomb where the Roman guards were. They're there at the tomb. They don't want to be around them. They're not going to go try to steal a body. Besides, the disciples themselves believed that Jesus, they, or they did not believe at this time, Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They have to be convinced later. So they had no reason to try and counterfeit that which they didn't even believe at this point. Number two, if their story was true and Jesus' body had been stolen, why didn't they just produce the body? If Jesus' body was taken, where's the body? Rome had hundreds of thousands of soldiers at their disposal, which they could just send out to go interrogate people all throughout Jerusalem until they found the body. Beyond that, why not just interrogate the disciples? If the disciples, in fact, stole the body, find them, interrogate them, but they never did. Number three, there's a third flaw in the lie the religious leaders came up with that proves the resurrection. The fact that the soldiers say, well, we fell asleep. All of us fell asleep while the disciples came and took his body. That's impossible. First, by how the Romans did their nightly rotation. They would have four soldiers uh, doing shifts. So there there were 16 soldiers, four uh, doing a rotation with a three-hour shift each to keep guard. So it wouldn't just be one soldier who accidentally fell asleep. It would have to be four of them who were guarding the tomb during this three-hour shift all four of them uh, falling asleep at the same time. And again, your life is at stake as a guard. If you fell asleep and someone took the body on your shift, you're going to die. So do you think four guys are all going to fall asleep 
at the same time in that situation? I don't think they're going to do that. Not only that, even if they did happen to fall asleep, or all four of them fell asleep, don't you think they would have woken up when they heard the, the stone being rolled away as the disciples are trying to get in and steal the body? I, I would think they would wake up at that point. And finally, think about this. If all four soldiers did fall asleep, how, they, how do they know it was the disciples that took the body? They weren't awake. They were asleep. So how would you know who stole the body if you're sleeping? And if they did see the disciples stealing the body, why didn't they just go after the disciples? Of course, the real answer to all of that is because Jesus rose from the dead. He wasn't there. And since this time, many other conspiracy myths came up as well. Some said, well, the Jews stole the body. How ridiculous is that? I mean, if they did, they could just produce the body and the entire Christian movement would stop right there. We have the body. Here he is. But there's no, there's no body. Or here's this one. The women went to the wrong tomb. It was early in the morning. You know, it was hard to see. The sun was, isn't out yet. And, the, and if you know the topography of Jerusalem, the, the hills and everything, there are a lot of graves in Jerusalem. So it could be easy to get the wrong tomb. And they had tears in their eyes because they're, they're weeping and they're emotionally distraught. So they just went to the wrong tomb. Well, what's wrong with that theory? Well, at least three things. Number one, there were several women, not just Mary and Mary. There were other women with them. And if you put all the gospel accounts together, you know, you have all these women, several people who saw where Jesus, the, the original event of the execution of Jesus and the tomb that he was laid to begin with. Remember, they, uh, they went to the tomb and prepared his body to some degree uh, the night after he was crucified. So if you have more than one person, there's a lot less likely of a chance that you're going to go to the wrong tomb. But let's just suppose they did. A couple of women also ran to Peter and John, and they both came to the tomb to check out this empty tomb. So you must then suppose that not only did the women go to the wrong tomb, but Peter and John also went to the wrong tomb later in the day when the sun was out. And you must also suppose that the guards went to the wrong tomb and that the Jewish Sanhedrin went to the wrong tomb, and the angel of the Lord went to the wrong tomb. You'd have to assume all of that. And then, if all of them went to the wrong tomb, then all you had to do was go ask Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph, is this your tomb? Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's not plausible. It's not a plausible explanation to explain away the resurrection. That's the wrong tomb theory. There's also the swoon theory that says Jesus didn't really die. He, uh, he just fainted on the cross. He swooned, and he was near death, but he didn't die. But once he was buried in the cool, uh, the damp tomb, that somehow he felt better, and he, he revived. And of course, yes, you laugh. It's ludicrous. He had been beaten severely. He was nailed to a cross. He had his side pier, uh, pierced with a sword. Well, I'm sorry, with a spear. He stopped breathing. How is a cool, damp tomb going to revive anyone? But let's just suppose, let's follow this through. Let's just suppose that he did. Let's suppose he somehow got better. How did he get out of the tightly wound wrappings he was wrapped in? And if he did, how did he manage to single-handedly roll a two-ton stone 
up, uphill that had been put closed from the outside and he's on the inside. How is that going to happen? And if so, again, where is the body? One more, just one more. The hallucination theory. They all hallucinated that he was alive after he rose from the dead. They just thought they saw Jesus after the resurrection. What's wrong with that theory? A couple of things. Uh, One, hallucinations are not corporate, where a group of people see the same hallucination. Uh, if, If we all see the same thing, it is not a hallucination. Now, hallucinations are individual. They may be individual, and some people who are emotionally distraught and under extreme situations, they can or, or may hallucinate. But we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. So, uh, Meaning, there's a lot of people who saw it. They're still alive. You can go ask them. They all saw it. 500 people saw the resurrected Christ at one time. That is a corporate experience. It's not a hallucination. So throughout the centuries, there have been many objections uh, suggested to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but a plain, simple understanding of the evidence of the resurrection answers all of those theories, and it shows us that it takes far more faith to believe those things than to believe the biblical account of the resurrection. If we can believe anything in history, we can believe in the reliable, confirmed testimony of these eyewitnesses. Jesus rose from the dead. If you look at the evidence as it stands, you will come to know the Lord, that he is risen from the dead. It's happened to many people. Uh, There have been many people who've tried to go disprove the resurrection that end up becoming Christians because they realize, oh, it's true. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, came to that conclusion, Josh McDowell, uh, Lee Strobel, Uh, Lee Strobel was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune and seeking to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. The more he investigated, the more he came to realize that that Jesus is God and that all of the events concerning his crucifixion, burial, death, and resurrection all point to the fact that he did, in fact, rise from the dead. And here's the thing. Only God can do that. And only one man ever claimed to do that. Buddha never said, hey, when I die, I'm going to rise from the dead. Muhammad never said that, hey, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise from the dead. No, Jesus said it many times, sometimes cryptically, like it was hard to understand if that's really what he was talking about. Other times it was very clear, I will rise from the dead, I will return, and he did it. He He didn't just say it, he did it. The tomb is empty. But the Roman guards and the religious leaders, they came together and conspired together, responding to the discovery of the resurrection with deception. But now the disciples and Jesus finally meet up in Galilee, and where we see a conflicted reaction uh, to the discovery of the resurrection, we see both devotion and doubt. Verse 16 Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. So they finally meet up. They're in Galilee. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. The natural reaction to encountering the resurrected Jesus is worship. 
even if some had to overcome some uncertainty and hesitation. Understand, that word doubted here, it doesn't mean a settled unbelief. It means they're in a state of uncertainty and hesitation. They're not sure. I mean, this whole experience of seeing Jesus resurrected, it's so overwhelming and so mysterious that some of them just didn't know what to think about it. On the one hand, there was likely some lingering shame uh, from having forsaken Jesus and run away during his suffering. And on the other hand, they probably thought, this is just too good to be true. And the fact that some of the disciples doubted argues again against the theory that they were seeing Jesus, them seeing Jesus was simply a hallucination born of some desperate desire to see him. They worshiped. They worshiped him, but some doubted. And you know what? That's a description of every church service that has ever existed. Some believe and some doubt. Some are settled in their faith and they express it through worship and devotion. Some doubt in the sense that they have uncertainty and they're hesitant because they have shame. There's shame in their life. And we experience that at times. We're like, I don't know. There's hesitation. Some doubt in the sense that this is all just too good to be true. I don't know if it's real. I want it to be real. I want to find out if it's real. Because you know what? One of the greatest pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is these disciples, these men. If any of those theories that I mentioned were at all possible or plausible, let's say the disciples did, they knew it. Yeah, okay, we did steal the body. Let's just keep this guy, the lie going though. We're too far into this. Let's just keep it going. Here's a problem with that. James was beheaded. We read about that in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, Herod, uh, then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. So that's the one scriptural uh, point where we see one of the disciples being martyred for their faith. Uh, After that, there's the close of the canon of scriptures, but church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in John chapter 21. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace Judas Iscariot after he uh, betrayed Jesus and killed himself. Matthias replaced him. He was stoned and beheaded. Bartholomew uh, was flayed to death by a whip. Matthew, the writer of this gospel, was beaten to death with a club. Thomas was stabbed in India on one of his missionary trips there. Andrew, the brother of Peter, he was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. After seven soldiers whipped him severely, they tied his body to the cross with cords to prolong his agony. And it was reported that Andrew continued to preach to his tormentors for two days until he finally died. John uh, faced martyrdom uh, when he was boiled in a huge basin of boiling oil during a wave of persecution in Rome. He was miraculously delivered from death and was then sentenced to the mines on the prison island of Patmos where he wrote uh, the book of Revelation. He was later freed and returned to what is now now modern-day Turkey where he died as an old man. He's the only apostle to die peacefully. But more important than how these disciples died 
is the fact that they were all willing to die and all but one did die for their faith. They believed. They believe Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus had not been resurrected, these disciples, they would have known it. And people will not die for something they know to be a lie. And the fact that all the disciples were willing to die a horrible death, refusing to renounce their faith in Christ, is tremendous evidence that they had truly witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't you think at least one of them would have cracked at one point, confessed, if they knew it was a lie? Because history tells us that not only did they die, but in some cases their families were also killed. Don't you think one of them would have said, okay, hold up, okay, I admit, this whole thing was made up, I'm going to break, I crack, I'm going to tell you the truth of what happened. That didn't happen. Their consistent testimony brought this, that brought the suffering of death of these apostles as one of the greatest pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, the believability and the authenticity of the resurrection. So our question this morning what is your reaction? Have you believed in the overwhelming evidence of the resurrection? And have you believed in what that evidence means? What the resurrection means? It means Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the perfect Lamb who was sacrificed on a cross for our sins, to pay for our sins that we might have forgiveness of our sins. His resurrection from the dead is proof of his love for you. It says, I love you. He loves you so much. He went to the cross for you, to die for you. And he rose from the dead to give you victory in life, in this life, and to give you eternal, eternal life beyond this life. Jesus loves you, and his resurrection is proof. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.